Hey, my name is Akash Thakar, and this is Sound Business. This is the podcast where we dive into the mindsets and methods of some of the top musicians, sound designers, or audio creators in the world. We're going to interview everyone from plugin makers, performing musicians, video game composers, and everything in between, and learn how they run a successful business and how they're making a killer living in the world of music and sound. My hope with this podcast is that you can be exposed to the many myriad different ways there are to make a killer living in the world of music and sound, and help you realize that there's no one right way to get to the top. And with that, let's get into the episode. My guest today is Qian Hao, who's a composer, sound designer, and music performer based out of Shanghai, China. Qian has worked on a ton of different projects, from games like Spec Ops The Line, Dishonored, and Marvel Heroes Unite, and he's also worked with clients like Huawei, and perhaps most fascinatingly, he's also a player of the Egyptian Oud, which is kind of like an Egyptian lute. And he even ended up playing Oud on the soundtrack for Genshin Impact. In this episode, we talk about Ken's start in Boston and how he ended up moving to China after college, the truth of what a sound designer does in their job, the importance of just learning new skills for fun, and so much more. So without further ado, let's get into the interview with Ken Hao. So I'm not sure if you remember this, but you're the reason I know what sound design is, <laughs> because we were in Berkeley and we were sitting in some studio and you had a laptop with a World of Warcraft sound redesign that you did. And you just showed it to me. You're like, oh, check out this project I did. And I didn't know what sound design was. The concept of literally taking a scene and taking the audio away and putting your own sounds in. Like, I literally had never heard of that before or seen it in my life. And that's what kind of planted the seed for me. So you just showing me that gave me a career, essentially. But I'm curious, what gave you that? In <laughs> Thank you. What gave you that initial interest in sound and music? Because I know you started as a guitarist, but there's kind of a step in between where you got more into the digital side of things. Oh, that's actually a really good question. It was unplanned and unexpected. So I got to Berkeley primarily to become a composer. So my first major was actually film scoring, and when I got into film scoring, I found out how quote unquote outdated. The courses were there was still a lot of emphasis on old traditional techniques like you know writing on sheet paper and <laughs> conducting using clocks and stuff and in my second semester i just felt like there wasn't enough tech there wasn't enough new technology that would be valuable for me to bring into the into my career so i just had this hunch in me i had no research or real understanding for it but it was just a hunch in me that i think i should do something that's a little bit more tech focus. And that's how I randomly bumped into EPD, which was known as music synthesis then. And what's funny was I picked that major not because of the courses in there. I picked it mainly because it sounded cool. Like music synthesis, I had no idea what synthesis meant, but it sounded real high tech and real cool. And then, you know, back then we had these uh, Berkeley brochures detailing all the different majors and they had pictures to go along with it, right? So the picture that went along with film scoring was a, a conductor on stage. And for music synthesis, it was a guy with one hand holding the headphones <laughs> and one hand tweaking like a modular synth. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, that looks so cool. I don't know what that is, but that looks like a good direction to be in. <laughs> so when I went into the major, I had no idea that it was actually a very comprehensive major that covered each aspect of music tech. 
I was actually being surprised along the way. So at the beginning, it was just kind of, you know, it was teaching you like the basics of synth, music tech, using software, producing music with the computer. But as we kind of moved through, I think, till the, to the third semester, that's where they started getting heavy on sound design. And it was a big surprise to me. I didn't plan for it to happen for me, but I thought it was cool. And I remember the first thing we did was we had to make sound using a cork synthesizer mm-hmm. and we had to mimic certain sounds using the most basic set of synth components we have. And that was really interesting because I didn't know you could do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So it's like how you use certain combinations and settings that to create a slap, a snare, a bass drum, uh, a growl, a person's voice. And that was actually really interesting. I mean, I wasn't too much into the heavy technical aspects of it, but that itself kind of interested me. And then later on in the synth program, we had to do actual sound design for for picture. And that was what made me really excited about sound for visuals in general, because I didn't know that using sound design, you could actually bring like the picture to life. Like, for example, a car crash, right? I remember we did a car crash scene for from Batman. And depending on what sound you put in, you change the, the effect of the scene. So that got me quite excited about sound design at that point. So it wasn't that I wanted to be a sound designer from the start. It was, oh, wow, you could do something like that. Oh, wow, this really changes the whole thing. And then afterwards, when I watched Dark Knight on the screen and I heard the the actual sound design that that went along with it, that really convinced me that sound design is, number one, it's really cool. Number two, it's very essential to give an amazing experience to the audience. Yeah. And you found that it was cool. And then from there, where did you kind of take those skills? Because you practiced it, obviously, you did your assignments then you had this skill set after you graduated. Where was your head at? What were you thinking? Like, okay, I'm going to go work at a game company now. Or what were you thinking? So when I graduated, my goal was still to be a composer, not a sound designer. Sound design was just simply a skill I picked up along the way. Because like I said, when I went to music synthesis, I had no expectation that there was sound design as part of the program. So I knew how to do some sound design. So that was it. Then when I graduated, there was no job called composer, obviously. <laughs> and now there, there should be some. But back then, there weren't really jobs called composer, especially as a fresh graduate. So I wanted to stay in Boston. And the closest thing I could get to what I wanted to do, which was composing for games was to do an internship in a game audio outsourcing company. So basically, it's a company that gets jobs from all over, and their main gig is to just make sound and and fulfill their contracts. So I, I applied for that. I went in, and they said, this is a sound design position. I said, I know sound design. The boss then tested my skills and said, no, you don't know sound design. <laughs> so what I found out was what we learned about sound design at Berkeley is really just the bare basics because we only took at most two, three classes on how to do sound design. And it wasn't really to prepare you to be a quote-unquote professional sound designer. At the best, I would say, is to prepare you to be a sound editor. Because a lot of what we did in EPD was really just to pick the right sounds from a sound library and stick it in to Pro Tools and edit it in a way that matches the visuals. So when I went to the interview, they said, that's not what we do here. We actually do sound design. 
we design sound. So I'm like, okay, cool. So what you take me is like, okay, I checked out your stuff. You have some good basics. You know music. You know sound. You like games. Okay, so let's give it a go. And the boss then became my first sound design mentor. And he kind of taught me sound design from scratch. And the first week was me just making horse sounds. <laughs> yeah, so my assignment was to make horse sounds using a set of source material and cut it in a way where I can produce about 10 variations without it sounding repetitive. So I, my job then was to go through the sound library that he had, listen to all the horse sounds, pick up the ones that could match, cut each sound into half and kind of like mix and match with the different sets. And that's how I actually started learning real sound design, which by his definition was to create actual sounds that are unique. Yeah. Can you remember what surprised you during that process of like, oh, this is what I actually need to do. I had no idea this was a part of the sound design process. Like any surprises that came up? Oh, it was a surprise every step of the way. <laughs> so first of all, it's learning how to make unique sounds out of source material. Because a lot of people, even that I know now, the concept of sound design to them is downloading all the sound libraries available in the world find a sound, stick it in, and just cut the length and that's it. That's a lot of people's definition of sound design. But what I learned from that boss in that company was you have to take the idea of design very seriously, which means you have to make a deliberate effort to come up with something interesting and unique because people are paying you for that. I mean, if not, they can just hire a sound editor in, in their company to just stick sounds from like splice, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So every step of the way was, was very interesting. So the horse thing was the core skill that he taught me. And then the second one that really surprised me was how ambient sounds were made. Because back then, I thought ambient sounds were like this super complicated, complex only music science genius would be able to produce because it just sounds so complex, right? It's like drones with a lot of like flowing, evolving elements. And it's like, wow, I can't even tell what's inside. Then when the boss and some of the seniors in the company showed me, I was like, oh, damn, it was that easy. <laughs> and by the way, we weren't even using Logic or Pro Tools or any of the so-called professional tools. We were using Sony Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> if people don't know what that is actually primarily a video editing software and what i learned from that as well is you do not need the most advanced tools to make good stuff but yeah back to the ambience so what i learned was you can pretty much just take any sound that is at least two seconds long pitch shift it and drag it for as long as humanly possible and use a convolution reverb for the impulse response just find something that you wouldn't even think of and pump the wet up to 100%. And I was like, what? And by the way, that's how I did the ambience for Dishonored. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's what we did. It was really fun. It was really fun because it's not like you you had to do a job going through steps one to, to steps 10, like a, like a production line. It's like you actually get to have fun. It's like, oh, let me try a tiger raw sound. Let's, let me try a, a metal creek sound. Let me try this. Let me try that. And each iteration kind of gives you new 
ideas or new inspiration. I mean, it, it's just a it's a playground. It's definitely a playground. So that part was really interesting and surprising. What I learned from that as well is things that you think are complex are actually really simple. So what you finished your work there, and then did you move to China immediately afterwards, or did you stay in Boston for a bit after you finished up? No. So what happened was I did my internship, which was for six months. And then because I'm not a US citizen, I got this thing called the OPT, Optional Practical Training, which gave me a year of working rights in the US. So my boss offered me a, a job for that year. So I stayed in the company for that one year because it's an outsourcing company. So we got a lot of gigs. So we got you know, Farmville, Candy Crush, Dishonored. So that was the year I accumulated a large chunk of my portfolio, which really helped me years down the line. And when I finished, my boss actually offered to get me a, a work visa, but he didn't offer to bump my pay. Oh. <laughs> and so I was thinking about, okay, 10 bucks an hour. So this was 2010, okay? 10 bucks an hour, it's livable, but it's not amazing. So you can do the math for living expenses for 10 years ago. So yeah, he, he wasn't willing to bump the pay. And I was thinking like, okay, I've been here for a year. He wasn't willing to bump the pay. And uh, I kind of hate Boston's winter. Yeah. And at the time, one of our mutual friends, Sean, had already moved to LA. And he kept saying like, yeah, you should come. This is the place to be. It's amazing. Yada, yeah. So I was like, okay, what do I have to lose, right? So I first moved to LA. And when I was there, I tried to do what most composers try, you know, try to get a job or gigs and all that. And for a year, I pretty much couldn't get anything. So for one reason, it's my own problem because when a lot of composers go there, one very conventional route is to start off by becoming a composer's assistant which I wasn't willing to do because I heard a lot of things like, you know, you have to mow the lawn, do a lot of non-music related things. So I was like, that's not for me. So I tried to look for gigs. And because I was still fairly inexperienced, it was not easy to convince people to hire me. And for those gigs that I actually got, it didn't pay very well, obviously. I remember it was like 50 bucks a minute of music. Oof. Yeah, I mean, now, yeah. now that we think of it, it's like, oh. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, but it, it was just the case back then, you know, when you don't have much to show for, people will pay you based on your experience level, right? Because your portfolio pretty much is the thing that convinces them how much you're worth. That's pretty much it. So apart from that, I was also applying for actual jobs in companies, game companies like EA, Valve, and all that. So yeah, I applied for more than 100 companies and received more than 100 projections. And it got to a point where I thought like that was the end, like there was no hope. And just one day, randomly, I was checking LinkedIn when LinkedIn was actually still cool. <laughs> uh, so I saw this job ad for a position in Shanghai. I was like, never been to mainland China at that point. I didn't know they had the game companies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because it's, you know, China and the world, right? Right, totally. Most of us who are living out of China, you know games that, that come out of, like, Europe or the US and all that. You don't, don't know much about China. It was like, oh, I didn't know there were game companies in China. So I saw the job description. I was like, yeah, whatever. I, do, I got rejected, like, a thousand times. What do I have to lose? I sent an email. I got a reply saying, 
Oh yeah, uh, I think you're cool. How about let's get on the call? The position was for an audio lead. They're hiring one person to do everything audio for the company. So I spoke to the outgoing audio lead. He spoke to me. It's like, cool. He's a British guy. He left the job for Valve. Oh, wow. So I spoke to him. He's like, yeah, you're cool. Okay, so let me talk to the boss. The next call was with the boss. And uh, yeah, it was actually one of the most interesting interviews I've ever had. I picked up the phone. And I was already primed up, like, you know, to answer all the difficult questions and stuff. Picked up the phone. He's an American guy called American McGee. Oh, yes. Yes. We, we got on the call and then he said, um, so yeah, I spoke to Roland and he said, you're pretty cool. I checked out your stuff. You're cool too. So how about let's get straight to compensation? <laughs> I was like, man, is this a scam? Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, but long story short. Yeah. So we kind of hashed that out and then uh, we both agreed on the terms and stuff. And then we just began the work visa process. And before I knew it, March 1st, 2012, I landed in Shanghai and never left. Absolutely amazing. So you land in this new country, new job. You probably don't fully know what to expect because this is your first time as an audio lead. Tell me how you made the most of that, because I'm sure it wasn't just, ah, I know everything. I know everything about music and sound. Let me just knock this out. I'm sure it was surprises left and right. So how did you make the most of it? Yeah, like you said, it was my first job as audio lead. So I, it was my first time in that position, but I had the skills. So when I went there, it was actually a few different aspects. So one, I had to first soak in the city and the country which was actually a big challenge itself. I mean, I'm from Southeast Asia, but you know, China it really is a very different animal. Like when I went there, there was the air quality to deal with. The city and the country was still going a very rapid modernizing process. And there was just a lot of local things to, to pick up on. So that's one aspect. And then the other aspect is the job. Fortunately, the company is what we call small to mid-size game company, independent game company. We had about maybe 50, 60 people tops. And at the time, the company just transitioned from a AAA production company to a mobile company. So 2011, 2012, that was when mobile was really ramping up. So the company just was starting their first few mobile titles. So at the time, the challenge was because they were producing three titles simultaneously, they had three small teams. And my challenge was, how do I manage my time, manage my expectation, and still meet my work obligations? So that was a challenge because before that, I've always been very used to working on, say, one project at a time or one project a day. Or even in the game audio outsourcing company, my time was being planned out by my boss. Like he will tell me, you will spend three hours a day on this project, four hours on this project. But in this company, I'm the audio lead. I'm responsible for everything I do. I have to come up with my own plan and my own time management methods. So that was actually the biggest challenge. So the audio side wasn't actually the biggest challenge, although it was fun because I had to work on three very different genres of games. So there was one, it was a dark-themed Red Riding Hood, but based in Japan. Oh, cool. <laughs> a 
it, yeah, that one took quite a bit of challenge with, with the music. And then the next one was like a fairy tale. And the third one is small, cute cartoon 2D shooter. So that was fun and also a big challenge having to break myself into different pieces and adapt into the different projects. But like I said, what's most challenging was the time management and to meet my work obligation. But all in all, it took me a, about six months to really adapt to the new working environment. And after that, it was a lot more natural. So you got all this experience from Boston and this company, and you started to freelance eventually. And how did you decide to make that transition? Because that's the scary part, especially in a new country. You know, maybe you don't know as many people, or maybe you had already met people by that point. But what was your process? Because a lot of people think, oh, I'm just going to get really good and then everyone's going to hire me. That's just how it works. But people need to know you exist. So how did you make sure people knew you existed by the time you start to strike out on your own? Okay, the quick answer was I did not plan the transition. I was laid off. And I wasn't laid off because I did a bad job because for many different reasons, the company did not do well. So eventually... Because the company was running on uh, VC investment money, so eventually the money ran out. The company was not making the money it needed to sustain the company. So eventually we went through a few, I think it was beginning of 2015, where the rounds of layoffs began. I was the last batch wow. to get let go. But the fortunate thing was, since I landed in Shanghai, I have been networking nonstop. I've been networking nonstop. So I have been going out to meet people and also people have been like taking the initiative to, to reach out to me. So I've been meeting people along the way. And as early as 2013, I was already moonlighting and freelancing on the side. So I was working on games. I was working on commercials. So I already have these kinds of resources on the side. So it wasn't that I was working exclusively in a game company, isolated from the rest of the world. And then when I made that transition, I had to start from scratch. So when I got laid off, it was a very scary moment. And that's where I learned one of life's biggest lessons. Salary is a drug. Mm -hmm. Salary is a drug because at the time, I actually had a very comfortable level of savings. But the fact that I know I wasn't going to get my next fix the next month, aka salary, it really got me panicking. I got a pretty decent severance as well, but I didn't have a choice, right? I couldn't go back and say, hey, <laughs> let's try and get more investment money and pay me, right? So, I mean, it is what it is. I got laid off. I accepted that reality. And so I was forced into being self-employed. So what happened was when I got laid off, quite a few of our ex co-workers who are already in different companies all around like Tencent, Garena and all that, they actually reached out and said, hey, do you need help? Uh, we, we're actually expanding. Do you want to maybe come in and talk to uh, our creative people and see if they need audio? So I actually went and talked to a lot of them and a few of them actually offered me jobs, like full-time jobs. But for some reason, I just wasn't feeling it. I, I was 30 years old at the point and I had a dream long ago to have to live that freelance life, you know, to live life on your own terms, but didn't get to realize it. So at the time, on one end, I was trying to, because I had that fear of not having a salary, so I, I, I was trying to address that by trying to get a job. But also at the same time, 
there's another part of me saying like, hey man, this might be it. Mm -hmm. This might be it and this might be your shot. So it's either now or never. So eventually I just, you know, declined all of them and I just took off. And because I thought that I had my prior resources on hand, I should be able to start getting gigs along the way. I was wrong. That's not how the universe works. You know, things don't just appear just because you want them to. Mm -hmm. So my first year of freelancing, I actually had zero gigs for about eight months. But mind you, I am not short of money. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I was panicking every single day like no other. And what's funny is I've been talking to friends along the years, you know, since from then till now, friends who make like over 100K USD a month who have, you know, decent investments and portfolios and stocks and all that, when they get fired, they panic just as much mm -hmm. as I did. So it's not a money thing. It's not a me thing. I think it's just a human thing that when you're used to having someone pay you for your services on a consistent basis, and once they take it away from you and you go into panic mode, I think that's a sign of addiction. Mm -hmm. So yeah, at eight months of zero gigs, I was panicking like... I was having like doomsday scenario in my head all the time. And one day, all of a sudden, one gig came in that kind of changed everything. I didn't reach out. It was actually on my LinkedIn that I did not really update much at the point. But I got an email from this French girl who was working in a creative agency in Shanghai. Reached out and said, hey, we have this gig. We want music for some of the videos we're making for this event. Well, are you interested? I'm like, yeah, sure. I mean, I have no gigs right now, so why not? And that turned out to be a really, really big gig for uh, Huawei. It was a Huawei International Conference event. They had some corporate short films that needed to have a music score and also audio produced. So I got the gig to do all the audio. I assembled the team and did the gig. So yeah, that one saved me. And from then on, I don't know how, things just kind of turned on an upward trajectory. It's really funny how it works. I think a lot of up-and-comer kind of newer people have been or maybe are in the exact scenario you were in. It sounds like kind of twice where you're waiting, 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 nothing's coming up, oh, then stuff starts to come in. So I'm curious what you say to them because there are a lot of composers who are worried right now. And how do you kind of tell them to keep going? I've actually thought about this quite quite a lot. How do I dispense advice to people who are in the position that I, I was in back then? And surprisingly, I couldn't think of a one-size-fits-all solution because everyone thinks different. Uh, you know, there's some people that have that natural motivation in them that sometimes when they meet a slight obstacle, all they need is a little outside motivation to keep them going. So for these kinds of people... It, it's usually no problem. And then on the other end, there are some people who are just naturally pessimistic. And, you know, no matter what you say to them, nothing's going to happen. But if there's one thing I can say is it's a mental game, you know, because we cannot predict the market. The world doesn't revolve around us. We have to make that decision whether we are going to stick it out or whether we're going to change course. Either way, there's no right or wrong answer. So back then... I could have changed course and switched to a different career and I would turn out fine still, but I still decided to stick 
the course back then. So I think ultimately is, will you look back in regret if you did not stick the course? I think that's the biggest question. I think that's a really good question. Now, you've now worked on many different things. You just mentioned you've worked on a Huawei conference. You've done video games. You've done film. So when people approach you, how do you kind of let them know what your specialty is? Because obviously, if you speak to everybody, no one's going to really be interested in you. So how do you make sure people reach for Kim? Okay, so I think this is where China works very differently from the rest of the world, at least in my experience, because I've been here for 12 years, right? When people come to you, they pretty much already know what you do on a broad scale. For example, oh, I have a website where they have browsed and seen like some of my portfolio stuff, or they may have browsed another website where they could also find my previous work. So they know, okay, this guy does audio, this guy does music. Most clients, in my experience here, right, most clients' concern is not your specialty, it's your price. Your specialty is second. Your price is first. And the reason why I say this is because over the years, whenever people get in touch with me, doesn't matter if it's email or it's WeChat or it's social media or whatever, their first question is, what's your rate? Mm -hmm. Yes. They don't bother to ask, what is it you're good at? Can you please show us some of your previous work? Or they'll give me a brief of what they're looking for and see if I match. Their first question most of the time is always, what's your rate? And then, then I'm like, what, what do you want? Oh, about 60 seconds of music. For what? <laughs> it's like I have to keep probing deeper and deeper before I can give them the answer that they want. But even then, they're not concerned about your specialty. They're concerned about your price. So how do you kind of get around that? Or do you get around that? Like, what's the, what's the way to make sure you're still getting paid decently well while getting to work on cool projects and making sure people don't just keep walking away because you're more expensive? So I can answer this two ways, okay? So one is for the clients whose price is the main concern, it's a roulette game. First, you have to decide if you want to play the price game because as I'm sure you know, playing the price game it's a never-ending down spiral. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you quote 1,000, the next person will quote 900, the next quote's 800. And I've actually heard, right, some people, if they're so desperate to get the gig, they would actually pay for the gig. Oh. So how do you compete against that, right? So you have to decide if you want to play the price game. If you refuse to play the price game and decide that your rate is fair and you would only work with your rates, then you just give them your rate and see what comes back. You know, maybe they end up not being able to find someone that works and they'll come back to you or the bigger chance is they'll never come back, which is fine. And on the other spectrum, usually it's word of mouth. It's already someone that you've met through organic means, you know, like you through a networking event and then you guys talk about stuff and then they ask you, oh, what kind of projects you worked on and then oh cool we're working on something similar as well how about we work on a project it's mainly through like personal relationships I, I rarely get someone come to me and ask me very specifically in a technical way what's your expertise 
So I rarely get a chance to tell them, so I write music and I write in this style. I also do sound design. I use Pro Tools. Like I, I, I rarely get a chance to explain it like that. So it's either through this kind of like very organic relationships. And then once I work with them, they like me and I like them and they'll spread the word around. And then the people they spread the word to will take their word and come to me and say like, hey, we want to work with you. This is a thing. And they don't really ask. Yeah. <laughs> they just trust you. They just trust me, yeah. So a lot of it here, based on my experience, okay, I cannot speak for the rest of the world or, or speak for everyone else, but as far as I'm concerned, it's very trust and relationship-based. They just assume that if they know someone that worked with you, that means you have what it takes. Yeah, honestly, I would say it's the same in the US as well. I'd say 99% of my gigs are a friend just being like, you seem all right, come on board, not not asking any questions, not asking for previous work, just trust based off of word of mouth. So that makes sense. But I think the only time I get asked, like, what's your expertise is during a job interview. But if you're talking about as like self-employed freelance people getting gigs, I rarely get asked that. Totally. Now, speaking of specialties, you have a fascinating one, which is the Egyptian oud. And I am so curious how this came about. Because again, when we knew each other, Berkeley guitarist, and I know you got interested in the Egyptian oud and then ended up performing kind of out of nowhere. You got pulled into these live gigs and then ended up playing on Genshin Impact. So I want to know the whole story of this wild journey you've been on. So like you said, you know, it actually started from Berkeley. And because Berkeley is such a diverse place, I got to meet a lot of Middle Eastern people, especially Turkish people. And that's uh, where they introduced their music from that region to me. And because I play guitar, right? So oud and the guitar have, they're related. And also for me to pick up the oud, it just makes sense. So since Berkeley, I already had that fantasy and idea of playing the oud. But because back then I was poor and I was busy with other things, so the idea was planted, but I didn't act on it. It wasn't till 2014 when I was working in the game company. And just one day, I just finished my work early. All of a sudden, that idea came back to my head. Like random, totally random. Then I went on eBay, which was the only site back then that I know that I could find something like that. I typed oud came up a lot of options and it's not like I'm an I'm an expert in choosing what oud's best. Right. So I went based on budget. <laughs> so I was like, okay, so looks like the average price is around like 6 700 US and this one's from Turkey. I'm like, okay, let's give it a go. So I just ordered then. And uh, it arrived 2014 Christmas day. Oh, cool. <laughs> yeah. I didn't make that up. It literally arrived on Christmas Day. <laughs> That's awesome. When the instrument came, I got so excited. I picked it up, brought it back to my office. I opened it. The moment I lifted that instrument, I thought I was scammed. Oh, no. Have you held an oud? Yeah, they're so light. Yeah. And because I'm a guitar player, I'm used to having like my instrument weighted. Mm -hmm. Totally. So this one felt so light. I was like, oh, man, I got scammed big time. <laughs> but yeah, anyway, I went on just trying to teach myself because I couldn't find anyone to, to learn from. I looked up YouTube and there was some free lessons and I tried my best to learn from them with the materials I have on hand. And after two years of like fumbling and messing around and sounding totally out of tune and sounding bad, I started sounding decent. And then I picked up, I learned some popular 
folk tunes from the Middle East and post them on social media and all that. And funny enough, I got approached by one Middle Eastern percussionist. He's Chinese, but he plays Middle Eastern percussion. He reached out to me and said, hey, let's, let's play. And then, uh, yeah, I met up. And then it turned out that there were a lot of Middle Eastern percussionists, just no Middle Eastern instrumentalist. So I was just, I, I started getting invited to play with a lot of these people and all that. And eventually started playing in like Middle Eastern restaurants. And then I got to know the bars. And then I got to know like diplomats and Middle Eastern business people. I played for like the Turkish Independence Day festival. and But that's not the fun part. The funnest part was when a Greek traditional music band came to play here. I went to the show. I went to talk to the oud player from the band, which is actually quite a respected oud player in the oud scene. And then because I was carrying the oud, and when I was talking to him, this other guy came by and said, oh, hey, you play the oud. And I looked over, I was like, yeah, what's up? So like, yeah, I'm the Greek consul general for Shanghai. <laughs> and I played the buzuki and oud as well. So how about let's play together? So yeah, and then I became friends with the Greek consul general of Shanghai. <laughs> and we started playing a lot. And then he started inviting me to a lot of Greek events. And yeah, it's just crazy, man. I mean, it, it wasn't my job, but right. I was paid to play and I was having a lot of fun. And how the Genshin came about was because before that, we are a very small circle of musicians that play all these specialty instruments. So we are pretty much connected with the world music organizers in Shanghai. And one day, this organizer that I knew found out from a friend of hers that a game needs wood recording and asked me if I was interested. I'm like, yeah, sure. And they kind of passed my contact to a friend which was working in a game company. And then when I said, oh, what game? It's like, oh, no, not my company's game. My friend's company's game. I was like, okay. And then he passed my contact on to his friend. And then when I spoke to them, they were like, oh, yeah, so we are MiHoYo. <laughs> and we have a project that needs Oud. And I'm like, Genshin Impact? They're like, yep. <laughs> Huge. Huge. Yeah. It's fun. It's fun. So we spoke, we signed, and uh, we spent about four months off and on Whoa. recording. I mean, I, I didn't really play the game, but as far as I know, the game is broken up into different maps, and each map represents a distinctive culture. So the map that they were working on was based like on India and Middle East. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so they were they were getting instrumentalists that, that play these instruments to record for them. And one thing I learned about Genshin Impact's music is they do their utmost best to record everything live. Yeah, it's amazing. Even in-game music, even the transitions, even the trailers. And then last October, they were having their third anniversary and they had their kickoff concert in Shanghai and also a bunch of concerts all around the world. So yeah, they got me to play for the kickoff concert as well. That's incredible. So this little thing that you just wanted to do one day for fun turned into this massive thing that you never could have 
expected. I think you have just explained it in the best way possible. <laughs> this also taught me a very valuable lesson as well. First thing, you know, being in the right place at the right time, you know, if I was playing the oud in the US, right. I probably wouldn't get a lot of attention because there are a lot of oud players in the US. But in China, I so happened to be one of the very few players who played the oud. And so happened, there are some very niche demands that gave me a lot of opportunities. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess the lesson here is don't discount things that are too niche sometimes. And if you're at the right place at the right time, it could really blow up into quite a big opportunity because no one else is doing it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's what I like to tell people about niches all the time is if you... If you're a guitarist, you know, a lot of people play guitar. Great, cool. But here you were, one of the very few. And you did it purely out of interest and fun. You weren't thinking, oh, this is going to be a big thing for me. You just did it purely out of fun. I thought initially when I first picked up the the instrument, I thought I couldn't last three months. (laughs) Because it's so hard to play. You know, I still remember when I first got it, like, it's hard to hold the instrument still. It's hard to play in tune. So I thought I wouldn't even last three months. But who knew? Who knew? Gosh, that's incredible. Now, second to last question is, now that you've done all this, what are you focused on learning? Are you learning any new instruments, new techniques, or even non-video game sound, music-related things at all? That's actually a very good question. I am currently intensely focused on learning a new set of skills, but it has nothing to do with music but it can help the music business side of things. So I'm currently very focused on learning in the areas of uh, public speaking, communications, and leadership. So I'm not sure, have you heard of this organization called Toastmasters? Oh, I love Toastmasters, yeah. Are you a member? I am, yeah, they're great. Oh, okay, 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 yeah. So I I have been a member for five years, and uh, it really changed my life in a way that it made me aware of how important communication skills are mm. like before that you know we just assume that these are just skills we already have right but then when i actually went in and got serious about it that's where i learned my areas that i lack and also that's where i realized this is an area that actually a lot of people could really benefit having mm-hmm. because you know looking back in my career i would go so far as to say 95% of a lot of uh, miscommunications, a lot of professional problems, a lot of just general issues in the world, not just music, can be solved if they have the most basic of communication skills. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd agree. Yeah. yeah. It's like, how do you solve disputes with your clients? Mm-hmm. Do you go all out ballistic because you want to defend yourself? Is that the right course of action? How do you introduce yourself? You know, how do you communicate your ideas like you may have the best ideas but what if you present in a way that's so convoluted the other side don't understand Mm -hmm. so that's the area i'm really deep in right now especially the past two or three years because i really see that this is a problem that i have that i will need to continue improving and also to help others to bring up this awareness so that they can really shine because everyone has very interesting ideas and very interesting skill sets that can be used for the better good but just they need to know how to get it out there Mm -hmm. love it so 
A question I like to ask everyone who comes on as we start to like wrap up here is when you were first starting out in this field, it could have been before Berkeley, could have been when you're just picking up the guitar for the first time. How did you define success and how has that definition changed over time and how do you define it now? My definition of success changed over time. So when I first started out, it was to be the fastest guitar player in the world. And when I became a composer, my definition of success evolved into if I get to work on a blockbuster film, which I eventually did. But now my definition of success is if I can die tomorrow and have no regrets, that's success, which I can proudly say that if I die tomorrow, I can die without regrets. I got to do what I wanted to do, which is music. I got to go into fields that I wanted to, like video games and film, and I got to live my best life, which is to live young, wild, and free, <laughs> which is something a lot of people want to do, but don't have the courage to do. So I might not be in like the best financial situation as, like, say, people working in uh, fancy, cushy positions in big companies, but I'm proud to say that I am living truthfully every single day, and if I were to die tomorrow, I would die with no regrets. So that's my definition of success, because life is short. If you're going to just chase material things or money, there's no end to it. So instead of looking outward, it's looking inward. Amazing. What a beautiful note to wrap up on. So last question, where can people find you? How can they see your stuff, get in touch, all that good stuff? Check out my website, kianhao.com. <laughs> Perfect. Easy. Amazing. This is so fun, Ken. This is a phenomenal interview. Yeah. I, you know, when I started seeing you post these things on, on Instagram, I'm like, yeah, well... Like, would be cool to do it with you. And this was a few years ago. Oh, really? Wow. <laughs> but I never actually thought about acting on it. <laughs> until I think it was like uh, two, two, three months ago, right? Right, yeah. Then we started talking about it, yeah. Yeah, until it was like two, three months ago. I, and then I, it just dawned on me. It's like, yeah, why don't I just ping this guy? Right. <laughs> we know each other, yeah. <laughs> That's the end of today's episode. Thank you so much for listening, as always. And considering I work in the world of video game, music, and sound, and so many people are always asking me how they break into that field, I have a newsletter set up for you. So if you want to learn how to make music and sound effects for video games and actually be paid to do it, just go to bit.ly forward slash soundbizpod. Sound, B-I-Z, pod. And that newsletter will set you up with two free courses and a bunch of free ebooks and even sound effects that'll get you set up and teach you how to work in the world of video game music and sound. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time. And if you're looking for more audio-related podcasts to listen to, this podcast is actually a part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. So if you want to check those out, hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org.